about some biblical passages, like uh, our text today, our renowned and admittedly uh, controversial. Why do I say this? Because there are passages that more than others have been understood in different ways with apparent and even literal contradictory meanings by various branches of the Christian church and even sometimes within the same doctrinal current uh, denominational current there is a contradiction or different interpretations and this is one of those passages that has been the source of much uh, controversy, especially in the last 100 or 20 years. This happens, for example, let me give you an example unrelated to this passage. This happens, for example, in the, in the issue to do with God's sovereignty. The perception of that subject is distorted in many people's understanding many people uh, uh, perspective because you have on one hand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and on the other hand the doctrine of human responsibility and you need to balance those two because if you overemphasize one you end up in Arminianism and if you overemphasize the other to the detriment of the one you end up with hyper-Calvinism our tendency is, as rational beings, our tendency is to, or tends to lead us to re reject that which we don't understand, or that which we, we find difficult to explain or to re reconcile. But it is indeed a, a work that we need to do, even if it's hard sometimes to reconcile two truths, it, we need to hold them together if they are present in the word of God. Our passage this morning is considered to be, uh, the Latin term is a locus classicus, the, the classical location, the proof text location, is considered to be a, a sort of uh, locus classicus uh, in some circles for this doctrine of a two-staged Christianity. This happens in Pentecostalism, in charismatic circles. This happens in Wesleyan circles with Christian perfectionism. This idea that you become a Christian, but then later on in your life there is a second stage where you actually become a, a fuller Christian, a more complete, perfect Christian. And this passage has been used for, for the better part, of, if we're talking about Methodism, of a few hundred years now, as a, an example, as a, a, a classic proof text for this kind of two-staged view of Christian life. You receive, the, you receive the gift of regeneration by the Spirit. You receive the Spirit in part, that's what they would say. And then there is a fullness of the Spirit that you receive later on in your life perfect submission or perfect obedience or, or the, the, the gifts of tongues or, or in prophecy. That's what they would say. So it is, alas, a, a very controversial passage. And I don't want to come in and, and as if I have a, an axe to grind 
with some of those brothers, and I do call them brothers and sisters. But as a church, we believe, or I believe, that as a church, there are two things that, that need to exist for a church to be healthy and for a church to be pure. One of them is the love of the brethren. In this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If, if, if we don't love one another, we're not a church. There needs to exist that sincere love amongst us. And the second is the right doctrine. The Lord has given us through his special revelation his word, the things which we are to believe. So although I don't have an axe to grind in that sense with, with Pentecostal brethren or with charismatic brethren, not even with Charles Wesley and John Wesley in this, in this regard, I do believe that they are wrong. And it's very much a part of Christian love when you see someone in doing something wrong to tell them in love. But I want to do so with with care, because it is a, a controversial passage. We read here of gifts and experiences. We read here of, of disciples receiving the, the Holy Spirit in some way. We already saw this happen. As a sort of recap, we already saw this happen uh, at Pentecost, certainly, as the first outpouring and the, in the, the, the true outpouring of the Spirit. And we then see a sort of, and bear with me, towards the end I think will become more clear what I'm saying, but we see a sort of repetition of Pentecost in, in the book of Acts in three other separate occasions. We see it in Samaria, with those disciples there, we see it in, the, in Cornelius' house, and now we see it here at Ephesus with these disciples. These men came to faith, I believe. They were regenerated, and, and they were re presumably came to faith at some point during the ministry of Jesus, but they did not receive the Holy Spirit in some way. So today I want to deal with this, and I do appreciate if you would be in prayer for me, because it is a difficult subject to address. It is not an easy subject that, like other passages in Scripture, that are straightforward. For a proper understanding, and I'll say this before we move on to the text, for a proper understanding of this passage we are going to consider today, like always, but especially in controversial passages, we are to bring our minds, our intellect, we are to bring our thoughts captive to the Word of God, seeking to understand as far as we can, in the light of the Bible itself, of the rest of Scripture, the analogy of faith, you bring the rest of Scripture to bear on the, on the text that you are interpreting. If you could imagine a pyramid, you have this small text, you, you, you kind of lay the, the pyramid upside down on this text and allow the rest of Scripture to interpret it, seeking to use the whole of Scripture to understand. We need to bring our minds captive to the Word of God. 
So that's what we will consider today. We know last week we were looking at the ministry and the, the situation, the ministry of Apollos and the situation that happened uh, at Ephesus just before Paul came into this city. By the way, it's about one year has gone by since Paul left Ephesus, rushing towards uh, Jerusalem to, to, to perform the, or to finish that vow that he had taken. It's been almost a year now, and we hear that Paul was traveling back. We read of, uh, of Apollos uh, coming to Ephesus, the, the interaction that he had with Priscilla and Aquila, and how he then left from Ephesus to Corinth to preach the gospel there. Today, we will consider, under the title of In the Name of the Lord Jesus, we will consider the... Paul's arrival to Ephesus, number one. Number two, we will consider Paul's dialogue with these disciples, number two. And number three, we will consider the steps that were taken by the Apostle Paul with regard to what he understood from this situation. And towards the end, I'll try to wrap everything around, bring it together, tie a nice bow, and try and explain what I believe is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that is conveyed for us in here, in this passage. So firstly, Paul arrives in Ephesus. It says that he had passed through the upper regions of Ephesus. We read in, in if you would turn back to chapter 18, verse 23, we read there that he passed through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, in order to strengthen all the disciples there again, as is often the uh, as was the case in the in the second missionary journey, as Paul now starts the third missionary journey, he starts by visiting those churches that he had planted in his first missionary journey, and strengthening them. It's the church in Derby, the church in Iconium, Lystra, the church in Antioch of Pisidia, and he comes to the city of Ephesus. Now, I won't spend much time here explaining uh, the ins and outs and of the history and the geography of Ephesus. I've, we'll have time to do that next time we come to the book of Acts. But just remember that Ephesus was this great city in the province of Asia. It was one of the, 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 the main cities of the Roman Empire. It was actually the capital of the, the province of Asia, Turkey, that region that is today Turkey. It was a city uh, rich in culture, rich in commerce, rich in religion. It was founded perhaps 12 or, uh, or 1,000 or 1,100 years before this time. There was prosperity, there was tourism. There was in Ephesus the, the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis. It was considered recently one of the greatest wonders uh, of the world, one of the seven wonders. Was it recently? Uh, but it's considered to be uh, one of the seven wonders of the world. It is no longer that wonderful to look at. It's in ruins. Praise God for that. But it is how it is. On arriving in the city, Paul said, it says here to us that Paul meets with some disciples. We learn in verse 7 that they were 12. And the question is, 
Why are these disciples mentioned here? That's the first question. Why are these disciples uh, mentioned uh, at the point that Paul is arriving in, in the city? Uh, and why do these disciples have all these uh, idiosyncrasies when there is a church not far away from them in Ephesus? What, didn't they come across Priscilla and Aquila? Was this what is happening here? I believe that these disciples that were mentioned here are a separate community from the, the community in Ephesus. They were 12, and we know that you only needed 10 men to form a synagogue, to form a, a community uh, at this early stage, a community where Christians met. Um, and I believe that they were meeting together with their families, perhaps, in the outskirts of Ephesus, and that they were disconnected then from the church in Ephesus that was planted there for now about a year, where Priscilla and Aquila could have helped them. Paul, as he's making his way to Ephesus, he comes across this, this group of people, this group of men. There are disciples. There are disciples. And the question that I have is, disciples of who, actually? That is a question, isn't it? There are some who say that they were disciples of John the Baptist because of the mention here of being baptized into the baptism of John. And there are some that say that they are disciples of Christ, that they were Christians, that they were saved. I believe the latter because here we, every time we see the, uh, the Luke referring to someone as disciples in, the, in, in his gospel and in the book of Acts, if he provides no qualifier saying that these are disciples of, it is most certainly referring to Christians. This would be the exception to that rule if that was the case. So when Luke calls these men disciples, he's referring to them as disciples of Christ. If Luke wanted to indicate that they were disciples of John the Baptist, as sometimes has been inferred from verse 3, he would have said it so explicitly. He would have said so explicitly. In addition, Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's a really strange question to ask someone if you're, if you're not assuming that they are Christians. Even the question that Paul is asking of these disciples implies that they are uh, believing in Christ. So the conclusion from this arrival from these disciples, from, the, from, from this first verse, uh, verse 1 and 2, is that they are indeed disciples of the Lord Jesus, in, as in all other occurrences of this word disciple. But then the most interesting thing is uh, from verse from verse 2 to verse 6 or to verse 4, um, the most interesting thing here is the dialogue that happens. It consists of two questions. It consists of two answers. And the, the first question is, indeed, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? The verse translated here, or the, the verb form uh, translated here by, by the Apostle Paul uh, could just as well be translated, having believed. Have you received 
the Holy Spirit. Or since you believed, as the, the I believe the authorized version uh, says, uh, has it. To receive the Holy Spirit for the apostle, or for, to receive in the text here, is not so much to receive it at the moment of belief, but have you received the Holy Spirit having believed? One way or the other, the question is strange. However you understand this question, it is a strange question to be asked. The Apostle Paul, he, he was quite clear that if you don't have the Spirit, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not His. Romans 8, 9 says that. John 3, uh, verse 5 records for us that Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To make sense of the Apostle's question here, it must refer to another reception of the Spirit, different from the reception of regeneration. Now, it might seem odd, but it, the book of Acts is full of oddities for us. John Calvin says in this passage, commenting, commenting on this passage, he says, Paul is here not speaking in this place of the spirit of regeneration, of the spirit of, of being born again. But Paul is speaking of the special gifts which God gave to several at the beginning of the gospel. I do agree with Calvin that this is not the, the Holy Spirit uh, of regeneration, but this is something akin to what was happening in what had happened in Cornelius' house in Samaria and primarily at Pentecost in Jerusalem. But then the answer is equally strange, isn't it? So what do they answer him? They say, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And here you think, how didn't they hear that there is a Holy Spirit? That is an e equally difficult answer to, to give. The disciples' response is strange. How did they not hear that it, there is a Holy Spirit? Did they not read their Old Testaments? It's full of prophecies saying that the Holy God would pour out His Spirit. Joel, did they not hear? Having been baptized by John, they didn't... They didn't did they not hear what John had to say about the Spirit? That he would come after him, would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? They knew of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, what is being meant here has to be different. And this is what I mean bringing the rest of Scripture to bear on, on, on this difficult, controversial passage. Any way you look at it, what is being said here is weird, unless we bring the rest of Scripture to bear. The explanation 
is again found in the Greek word to be, or in the Greek verb to be. When, when they say, we have not so much as heard whether there is to be or that, whether there uh, is a Holy Spirit, the Greek verb here is esteen. That can also mean something of a phenomenon uh, of happening. We, you could translate this as saying, and it wouldn't do any violence to the, to the Greek. You could translate this as saying, we have not so much as heard whether there has happened the Holy Spirit. They didn't know that Pentecost had happened. Perhaps because they were not around Jerusalem, uh, in the, t in the days of Pentecost, perhaps because they left from, from Jerusalem and they were this sort of isolated community in the outskirts of Ephesus, which was fairly normal, uh, fairly normal in, in those days to have very isolated communities. There was no internet and newspapers. There were, it wasn't like something was WhatsApp. If you were a self-contained community, you would, would take time for these things, these news to arrive. So I don't think they, what they mean here is that they didn't believe in the Holy Spirit as much as they didn't know that the Holy Spirit was given that the Holy Spirit had been poured out already, that the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament and the promises and prophecy that, that of God through John the Baptist and Jesus himself in the New Testament said it had already been fulfilled. And again, I'm, I'm trying to protect myself with, with, with looking at, uh, uh, at other inter interpreters and commenters this is also what John Calvin believes and defended. He considers that the confession of the Ephesian disciples referred to the visible graces, he says, by which God had beautified the kingdom of his son. They confessed that they did not know that God had conferred such gifts already. They knew of the Spirit uh, promised, but they did not know of the Spirit fulfilled in that sense. They didn't know it was fulfilled or not. They had no knowledge of Pentecost, another one says. The group's comment merely means, another commenter says, that they did not know that the Spirit had already been bestowed. The Old Testament announced this. The Old Testament said that there was a new Age, a new dispensation, a new covenant, and that when God would come, he would send forth his spirit abundantly upon the sons and daughters. And Peter alludes to this in his sermon after Pentecost. He says, this is the fulfillment of that promise. But then we have a second question by Paul, don't we? And again, it's a difficult question. One that requires a little bit of juggle uh, a little bit of deeper deeper thinking in on our part he asks into what then were you baptized he's shocked you didn't you hear are you are you into what then were you baptized 
And his question concerns uh, who, to what had they been baptized? Paul's question indicates that the reception of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that took place on the day of Pentecost in Samaria and in Cornelius' house was somehow associated with Christian baptism. Although they're, regardless of the, the chronological relationship between these two things, I know this can be quite difficult to follow and, and difficult to understand, but it is important for us to, to try and see the particular special nature of what is happening here in Acts 19. Again, as I said last week, this is not meant to be for us, uh, and said two weeks ago as well, this is not, the book of Acts is not meant to be for us a manual of uh, the paradigm for Christian believers. It is meant to be for us a record of the progression of the gospel in this early stage of Christianity. We have manuals of paradigms. It is the letters of Paul and of, of Peter and of John. This is just a recording of how the Holy Spirit came about doing those things. So what is the response? They say we were baptized into John's baptism. Like Apollos, the disciples in Ephesus knew only of the baptism of John. They knew only of the baptism that, uh, to, for the repentance of sins. Unlike the Samaritans and, uh, and, and those present uh, in Cornelius' house, although they, there was a baptism they, they, the, that was not the Christian baptism, they did not know or they did not receive up until now the Holy Spirit or the pouring out of the Spirit. They professed faith, and here I'll quote Matthew Henry, the, the old Puritan. It says that they professed faith in Christ as the true Messiah, but they were as of yet in the first and most elementary classes in the school of Christ. Let me read that again to you. Matthew Henry they professed faith in Christ as, true Messiah, as the true Messiah, but they were as of yet in the first and most elementary classes of the school of Christ. And the way for us to understand this, the way for us to reconcile this with the rest of Scripture, with our own experience, with, with, the, with the understanding of, uh, uh, that we have of the New Testament, is that indeed these are particular times where there is a flux, there is a change, there is a, 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 an extraordinary nature of things happening that are not meant to be replicated for us. So what, number three, before I conclude, what were the steps taken? In verse four to six, Paul lists the steps, or Luke lists the steps that Paul took concerning these disciples. He taught them, number one. He baptized them, number two. And he laid hands on them, and they received the Spirit. So he instructed them. Verse 4, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. He is not said to have preached the gospel to them. Again, a further indication that these men are... Uh, disciples of Christ, that they in some sense, as Matthew Henry, as, as 
John Calvin uh, believed that they were in some sense, or sense already uh, regenerated. Paul doesn't preach the gospel to them. Paul instructs them. Paul teaches them on the nature of the baptism of John and on the nature of John's ministry. What was it that John came to do? John's baptism was intended to lead them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Since they had already been led to saving faith, it remained for them to receive the Christian baptism as the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace, the rite of initiation and of welcoming into the church. And that's what they did. Verse 5 says that when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is not said that the apostle himself baptized them. It is possible that he did. And it is possible that his assistants, some of his co-laborers like Silas and Timothy, did this. The baptism form here says, that says that they were baptized in the name of Jesus is just shorthand. Certainly, it is not the complete formula that our Lord Jesus gave to us. He said that we are to baptize in the, in the name of the Father, the Spirit, uh, the, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. And as the, the Lord instructed his disciples to baptize, these, these ones were baptized as well. And Paul, number three, laid hands on them. And I... I'll bring all of this together in a minute. Luke reports that in verse 6, that in, then he laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, the men were about 12 in all. And again, further proof that they were, not, uh, that they were already regenerated. If Paul had to lay his hands to regenerate them, that would be a, 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 a very unusual thing. No, this is laying of hands for something else that is happening here. But the fact that they prophesied, the fact that they spoke in tongues, is further indication that this is connected to Acts 3, to Pentecost to the pouring, outpouring of the Spirit that had happened on, in Jerusalem all those years ago. The temporary nature of this phenomenon, someone wrote, is indicated to us by the fact that in each case, in Acts, that these two gifts occur together, they take place in the personal presence and supervision of the apostles. So, I hope you're following me here usually by the end of the exposition of the text I would give some practical application but today I don't think it is a expedient for me to give practical application as much as it is probably helpful for, for me to give a, a wraparound theology of what was happening, or theology of the Holy Spirit, let's call it that. I had two questions in my mind, two difficulties to resolve uh, this week as I approached this text. And I, I must confess that sometimes uh, coming to a text is easy, 
coming to attacks is uh, uncontroversial. You don't feel the need to 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 try and and navigate these waters. But this was a difficult one. The two questions were: What is the the connection between the John's baptism and the baptism of the Christians, or the Christian baptism? And I'll leave that question for another time, just for the sake of time. But the second question is, how do we reconcile all these passages? Perhaps the main question is, what is the meaning of what is happening here? What, what is exactly the meaning of all of this? What is the meaning of the descent of the Holy Spirit, particularly on the disciples at, at Ephesus? Now, for me, I'm a cessationist. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, where the Spirit comes in, uh, in endows and uh, uh, men and women in the church with special supernatural gifts, has ceased. And that is a something that I've already uh, spoken of at other points. So it would be easy for me to just explain away this as saying, oh, okay, this is just meant to, to be a, a one-off. And what I usually would say is, well, look at the places in the book of Acts where, where the, the, the descent of the Spirit happened. What is the, the mission of the church given right at the beginning of Acts? Go first at Jerusalem, then in Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the world, and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, sorry, and, and look at where the Spirit descended. You have Jerusalem, you have Samaria, you have Cornelius' house, a Gentile, the ends of the world, but then Ephesus is kind of an outlier here, isn't it? Yeah, you're left with this outlier circumstance because Ephesus doesn't seem to, to quite fit with the with the, the the rest of the of the plan. And it would be tempting for me to try and explain Ephesus in another way, but I do believe bringing the the rest of the of the scripture to bear on this, bringing that upside down pyramid to bear on this, I do believe that this event is connected to Pentecost. There is a repeating nature, and I, I, I use quotes here, and I'm, uh, there is a sense where something that is happening here is connected and related to those other three events, in particular to the day of Pentecost. It is the Holy Spirit coming down on the hearts of, of, of of men, and they prophesy, and they speak in tongues. And the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, at Samaria, at, uh, in the house of Cornelius, and now here in Ephesus, uh, have parallels. So what are the parallels? Number one, three parallels that I want to bring out in the time that we have left. What happened in Pentecost and what happened uh, in Samaria, in the house of Cornelius and now in Ephesus needs to be seen from the point of view of redemptive history. 
What is happening in this time is clearly a, a, a new stage of the coming of the new covenant. They all re represent in some way the climax of all that had gone on since Genesis 1 all the way to the coming and the, the incarnation of the Son of God and our Lord Jesus coming into the world to his, to his crucifixion in a, a substitutionary atoning death. He's raising up from the dead on the third day according to scripture, being raised up to sit at the right hand of the Father. All of these things are for the purpose of fulfilling the promise of the Father in the Old Testament that the new covenant would be made. And in, 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 the, in many or in some of those promises, there was this promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the sons and daughters. And particularly Joel is quite strong in this language. So the descent of the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost and in these three other events is clearly a culmination uh, of the inauguration of the new covenant. It is marked by the outpouring of the Spirit. It is marked by the, 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 the Spirit being uh, poured out with strength and with power. It is the empowerment of the Spirit to the church as well. But that's the second point, the personal point of view. So the first point of view is redemptive history, the, the, the big picture. From a personal point of view, the outpouring of the Spirit is a pouring out of special spiritual power for the promoting of the gospel in the world. The Lord Jesus had said, didn't he, in his promise, he said, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon your but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high. And when he had eaten with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, the book of, uh, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for indeed John baptized with water, but we will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not long after these days. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the, the earth. So what do we make of it? Is the question. There is, a, is there a two-stage process here? Is there a, a two-stage process of conversion? If the two-stage pro, uh, process is not to be a paradigm for us, can we at least conclude that some may experience uh, extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, even if it's just a single a stage affair? Is it, does this mean that we then can, like the, the disciples here in Ephesus, uh, expect to speak in tongues and to, to receive uh, uh, the gift of prophesying? I don't believe so. I don't believe so because, again, what the New Testament then goes on to teach us is that God does not give his spirit in part. Yes, in this time, because of its 
exceptional temporary nature, we find that the spirit, uh, that the outworking of the plan of God uh, takes this staged uh, influx kind of, uh, uh, of approach. But when you come to the New Testament, when you come to the, new, the letters of the New Testament, you realize that the Spirit, when the Spirit is given, is not given in part. You receive the Spirit for who He is. It's not, that the, it's not like the Spirit is a thing that, that you can receive 50% of. of. Same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot receive 50% of Christ. When you receive Christ, Christ is yours and you are his fully. That's the, the, the lie that, that some Christian circles speak of, of, of receiving Jesus as your Savior, but not receiving him as our Lord. We all know this to be a lie. Why is it that with the Spirit, when we talk about receiving him, with receiving the Spirit, we only receive a part of it? God does not give his Spirit in measure. He pours it out fully on those who believe. There is a sense, and I'll say it in a, uh, and I'll come to it as we come to the third point. There is a sense that we are to look for the outpouring of the Spirit in our lives in, in power more and more. But in the experience, personal experience of the Christian, there is not measure of the Holy Spirit that we receive. When we receive the Spirit upon His act of regeneration, He comes and He regenerates, He gives us faith, we receive the Spirit for who He is. Again, but even from the book of Acts, if this was to become a norm and paradigm, why didn't Paul prophesy? And speak in tongues. Why didn't, uh, in, the, in the same sense, why didn't uh, the Philippian jailer, the, Ethiop the Ethiopian treasurer with Philip, the Lydia in Philippi, if this was in some way paradigmatic, if this was a paradigm, it, it would have meant, have to have been seen in more, in all of the conversions that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. So this leads to the conclusion that Samaria and Caesarea and, and Ephesus are only signposts along the way. Are signposts uh, along the way marking the transition from the, the Old Testament, Old Covenant, John the Baptist uh, world prophetic, promised to the New Covenant, New Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ came, fulfilled new world that is being installed here. Within the book of Acts, whatever else may be true of the rest of the New Testament, the tongues of Pentecost are not thought of as a repeated element in the initiation experience of later believers. Isn't that interesting as well? I know we have the book of Corinth, uh, the first book of Corinthians to, uh, and the book of Cor Corinthians to deal with, uh, and there's talk about speaking in tongues there, but Corinthians is not the, the most perfect church, as you know as well, to, to be an example of that. But in the book of Acts, the speaking in tongues is not repeated, is it? In the personal experience, they speak once, it's done. So it's not a normally repeated element. 
in the initiation experience of later believers as well. But finally, and quickly, and the part that I'm most excited about, the third connection that we find in these elements, Pentecost, Samaria, House of Cornelius, Ephesus, is the element that we find perhaps connection with our own experience, or sadly, we don't find it as we would want to. The coming of the Spirit in these events shows us something that we should long for. Although Pentecost is not repeatable, and here I would say it, because I've been uh, quoting it, scare quoting it from the beginning. Although Pentecost, what happened in Jerusalem is not repeated, it is mirrored throughout the book of Acts, and I would argue, in some ways, throughout history. Let me explain. From the perspective of the history of the church, there is a sense that we are to long for, pray for, fast for, the Spirit to work in the same way in our own day. It is the history of revivals. You look at any revival in the history of the Christian church and you find something of the miraculous nature of the work of the Spirit. I'm not saying tongues and prophecy. I'm not saying gifts of healing and, 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 and those things. But every episode, every instance of revival has something of a great pouring out of the Holy Spirit producing an inter intense interest in, the, in spiritual religious reformation. This happened not only in the, in the, after the, the, the book of Acts, in the history of the New Testament church, but this happened in Josiah's day, in the Old Testament. This happened, in the, yes, in the, in the current uh, state of things, in, in, the, in the 1500s with Luther and Calvin and, and, and with, with Zwingli and with John Knox in Scotland in the, in the 1500s. It happened throughout the 16th century in the great religious revival of the 18th century in, in Great Britain and in, in America. Peter was just showing me a, a, a book that he was reading, someone lent to him, about the religious revival that happened uh, throughout the, was it the West Coast, uh, all the way up to Scotland, and how the, the Spirit just descended upon that, that place at that time. And he was saying that the, one of the ministers used by the Spirit at this time was a minister from a church here in Balaam. And the, the interesting thing was that he preached here. He was a minister here, and, and, and nothing ever happened. He went to preach some, somewhere down in, in, a, in another place, and the Spirit descended miraculously. A great interest in eternal spiritual things came upon, that impression came upon the, 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 the people there. 
And some of the people there were fishermen, apparently, and they went to Scotland and they took the gospel to Scotland. And revival came to Scotland. It's like it's, it's infectious as it happens. As infectious as COVID, they, they would say. And in a sense, that's what I'm trying to say. In some sense, Pentecost may be viewed as an inaugural revival of the New Testament time. What, what do you see there? Take away the religious, uh, the, the, the phenomenon, the, the supernatural phenomena of speaking in tongues and prophecy. What is that you see there in, at Pentecost? A deep conviction of sin. A sense of awe and wonder that is evoked there. And that's what, something that we can and should pray for. That there would be an outpouring of the Spirit. It's the, it's in, the, in, the, in the church that it would flow out into the nation. We have the Spirit, brothers and sisters. But we want to see a pouring out of the Spirit upon our hearts in the sense of bringing us to a, a greater sense of our spiritual need for him. I love that illustration that is often used here. It's the flow of water, isn't it? There is a revival is like, like a dam holding the spirit... Uh, it, revival is like a, the removal of a dam that was holding the water of the power of the Spirit from being poured out. And when that dam is removed by the will of God, when that dam is removed, it just pours out intensely, converting whole communities, whole nations. And in this context, I would say that the pattern of the day of Pentecost and the pattern that we see in, in the other three events in the book of Acts is very much not repeatable because I don't like the word repeating Pentecost, but the pattern is very much to be expected to be mirrored in our own day. The powerful coming of the Spirit needs to be expected, prayed for, if we are to see an awakening in our own day. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples of Ephesus was indeed an extension. Perhaps more than a, than a repeating of Pentecost. Think of it as an extension of Pentecost. As was here the, the coming of the Spirit in Samaria and the house of Cornelius. And that's something that we would want to see in our day the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our own district, in our own church, in our own hearts, in such a way that there would be no doubt of the miraculous nature of what's happening, that we would be, go from being cold and lukewarm to being fired up for the service of the Lord by the Spirit. So you see, again... It's very easy for us to criticize our Pentecostal brethren. And I do believe that they have a, a, a short uh, understanding of what true, uh, what true Pentecostalism is. 
We're more pens- Give me back that word. I want, it, I want that word back. That's what I usually say. I want that word back because I, I believe in a, in a fuller understanding of what Pentecost is. And I'm a cessationist. Give us that word back. Although it would be very easy for us to criticize our brethren there, I think most importantly is for us to realize where, because of our aversion to that form of Christianity, has caused us to turn away from a correct understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What do I mean by this? It strikes me, when you read some of these hymns, there's, there's something good about having all the hymns as well. When you read some of these hymns that were written long before the, the Pentecostal movement started, that they are very Pentecostal, aren't they? 311 says, Lord God, the Holy Ghost, in this accepted hour, as on the day of Pentecost, descend in all thy power. Ooh. This gentleman writing, James Montgomery, he wants something of Pentecost to happen. He must be a Pentecostal. No, he wasn't. We meet with one accord in our appointed place and wait the promise of our Lord, the Spirit of all grace. Well, but the promise was already given. Don't do that. Don't say that. There is something that in us, because of what Pentecostals have done, because of the charismatic movement, that we have become cold and have rejected the, the work of the Holy Spirit, if not in word, at least in practice. Look at what Matthew Henry, and I'll close with this quote by Matthew Henry. And let this be a challenge for us. Matthew Henry was no Pentecostal. Though we do not now expect miraculous powers, yet all who profess to be disciples of Christ should be called on to examine whether they have received the seal of the Holy Ghost in his sanctifying influences to the sincerity of their faith. And this is the indictment that he gives us. Many, many seem not to have heard that there is a Holy Ghost. And many deem all that is spoken concerning his grace and comforts to be a delusion. Of such it may be properly inquired. Unto what then were ye baptized? For they evidently know not, not the meaning of the uh, that outward sign on which they place great dependence. I find this deeply convicting, personally. I find this deeply convicting, coming from the pen of Matthew Henry. Many, he says, with their attitudes, seem to have not heard that there is a spirit. We're actually in the same situation, both of these disciples, because of our rejection of the Spirit's powerful work, because of our rejection of of the need to see the Spirit poured out like in Pentecost in our day. 
I would say because of our knee-jerk reaction against Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, because of a knee-jerk reaction, we've actually come to a place where it might actually be inquired of us rightfully, and to what were you baptized then? Don't you believe in the Spirit? Every salvation, every conversion that you see is a proof of the great powerful work of the Spirit. What we pray for is that just the Lord would do that in a greater measure, that he would open those gates of heaven and pour out his Spirit upon us, upon this nation, upon this district and upon this nation. May the Lord bless us with a deeper understanding of this passage. May we see something like that happen in our own day, in our church, in our district, perhaps even in our country, by the will of God and the supernatural action of the Spirit for the promotion and the glory of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ.